Hello and welcome back to episode 14 of Ye Olde Guide. In this podcast we explore the history and heritage of the towns and cities of England. My name is Liam McGrath and along with historian Daniel Gooch, today we are exploring the Cheshire town Warrington. A town of many industries. Warrington's history goes back to before Roman times. We're going to learn all about this. But first of all, hi Daniel, welcome back to the show. What first took you to Warrington? The very first time I went, it was uh, it was for rugby league. So that's Warrington Wolves, one of the twelve Super League teams in rugby league, and this is our second rugby league town on the podcast. We we visited Hull um, a couple of episodes back, and that has two of the twelve Super League teams. Um, you're forgetting one. You're forgetting oh, Wakefield. Sorry, of course, of course. How could I, how could I forget? Um, Major team there, Wakefield but, Trinity. I think they're. Oh, we had a great time visiting Wakefield Trinity as well. How how could I forget? Um, But it feels like at Warrington, we're in the heartland of rugby league, I suppose. Nearby Wigan, St. Helens, Mm, Lee, Salford's not far away. Yeah, Um, and the the Rugby League World Cup is on at this moment, so lots going on there. We've timed the episode perfectly. Absolutely. (laughs) So we're going to learn a lot about Warrington in this podcast, uh, but before we before we get go go into it, it's just worth setting out how we're presenting the podcast. We explore the towns we visit in five categories, and this is designed to make us explore the town from different perspectives. And in each of those categories, we're going to give our own personal scores out of 10 for historical interest. Let's start with where exactly is Warrington. It's less famous than some of the places we visited, so it's probably worth saying a bit about where, a bit about where it's located. Absolutely. You're right, it's less famous, but it's a pretty large town. Its, it's population's about 170,000, which is fairly substantial for a place that's not a city. It sits midway, really, between Liverpool and Manchester. It sits really on, on both banks of the River Mersey, between the historic counties of Lancashire and Cheshire. It first emerged really as an Iron Age settlement on the south side of, of the river in the area which is today called Wilderspool, because that was the easiest point at which anyone could cross the River Mersey when they were travelling north or south. This point around being able to cross the Mersey easily there is, as we're going to see later, really, really crucial to many of the events that took place in Warrington, as well as its, its foundation as a settlement. The Romans founded the settlement, an industrial one actually, in the Warrington area around 100 AD, about half a century after the Roman conquest of Britain began. But it was the Saxons who later expanded the town to the north bank of the Mersey. So it sat on both sides, effectively in both historic counties. After the Norman conquest, the the Doomsday Book records a town called Wallintune in that area, which is described as a village near the ford over the Mersey. So clearly Warrington's location is a crossing point straddling the river was continuing to be really essential to its existence and the notability it had. But it wasn't until 1285 that someone actually thought to build a bridge over the river and stop everyone's feet getting wet, with a second bridge later following in in 1364. Warrington became known as a market town in the Middle Ages, but expanded greatly in the modern era. First of all, when industrialisation brought new trade, new industries to the town, most notably 
wire and soap manufacturing is probably the two industries it's most famous for. But then later, for a second period, when it became a designated new town in the 1960s and new suburbs were built, essentially attached to the area in which the old town was was founded. One of the most famous events in Warrington's recent history was also um, one of its most tragic, the, the murder of two boys, three-year-old Jonathan Ball and 12-year-old Tim Parry by the IRA in the 1993 Warrington bomb attacks, which are remembered today in a memorial in the town centre and in the Peace Foundation Centre in Warrington, which is named after both boys. But in recent times, recent town centre development projects have given us the town as it is today, and we'll certainly talk more about um, those later on. Yeah, there's lots to say about Warrington's urban development, which we cover in the, the fourth category. So really, the River Mersey has been fundamental to the, the history of, of Warrington. The River Mersey is mostly associated with Liverpool. It's known, fam- famous for, for, for being the river that Liverpool straddles, but also comes inland. And Warrington's really the point that it becomes a smaller river, easier to cross. Um, and I think the crossing point at Warrington was was the first crossing point of the Mersey for a very long time, pro- probably until um, the Mersey tunnels were built in Liverpool. So um, we've got five categories to go, and um, we're going to start off first with politics and war. We're going to go back, as we so often do on this podcast, to the Civil War. We are indeed. Um because there are a few uh, notable events that happened in the Civil War in or near Warrington. The first point to make, kind of an overarching point, is a continuation of what we said before, that Warrington's historically been the easiest crossing point of the Mersey, and therefore it was a really crucial location to hold and control. Um, Daniel Defoe said in the 18th century that Warrington was the only crossing point between Cheshire and Lancashire on an important road from London to Scotland, and in case of war, has always been esteemed a pass of the utmost importance. So we really need to keep this point in mind when we're looking at the battles that occurred there in the Civil War. It was really important to control that crossing. The first Civil War event we'll look at is the the 1643 Siege of Warrington by the Parliamentarian forces. Uh, The background here is that Warrington was initially in royalist hands at the start of the war. In fact, two months before the war properly started, royalist forces captured the town's arms store and erected some basic fortifications to defend it. For the siege itself, following a number of minor battles around the town, the parliamentarians attacked Warwick in spring 1643 using cannon from Moat Hill, which is near St Elphin's Church, which still stands today and retains cannon shot marks from the firing of the cannon. The royalist commander seems to have panicked when the town was fired on and ordered that the town be set on fire, which which did happen. But Warrington remained under siege for another month until the parliamentarians stormed the town and took it in May 1643. Certainly an extreme response to order the town to be set on fire. It is, but more common than you might think in these circumstances, unfortunately. <laughs> and second battle was a larger engagement, actually, the Battle of Winnick, which is today a suburb just to the north of Warrington, which happened in mm. 1648. Now, this was part of a second phase of the Civil War, which is sometimes simply called the Second Civil War, to distinguish it from the first phase, which happened in 1648 and led to the execution of Charles I after he had surrendered to Scotland and then made a deal with his Scottish supporters to invade England on his behalf. It's really a kind of separate military action from the first phase of the Civil War. Now, the Royalist forces travelled towards Warrington in order, as you might guess, to cross the Mersey. 
However, the cavalry crossed the river first, which left their infantry isolated on the north of the river. This meant the infantry basically had no choice really but to hold a last stand at Winnick where they were defeated. And St Oswald's Church, which also still stands, was used as a short-term prison to hold some of the defeated royalist forces. So there's one kind of permanent reminder of the battle there. And then finally, we have the 1651 Battle of Warrington Bridge, which is part of the so-called Third Civil War, during which the now-executed King's son, Charles, who later became King Charles II in his own right, tried unsuccessfully to retake control of the country in alliance with his Scottish supporters, whose parliament had separately proclaimed him King of Britain, not just of Scotland, and the execution of Charles I, because they weren't consulted when the English parliament decided to to have his head chopped off. The battle was fought over the bridge, uh, over the Mersey at Warrington, where the parliamentarian forces had positioned themselves to try and stop the Scottish Royalist Army crossing. It was the last battle that the Royalist forces technically won in the Civil War, but was probably more of a skirmish than a full-pitched battle. And the only outcome really was that the the parliamentarians retreated. didn't have any long-term significance or change the resulting parliamentarian triumph in the war. Um, but beyond the, the, the sort of these three major events in these three phases of the civil war, have there been any other incidents of, of note in the political or military history of England? Um, there, there, there were a couple of Second World War connections that Warrington had. Yep. RAF Burtonwood in Warrington was the, the largest airfield for the American army outside the USA during the war. At its, its peak in 1944, there were 18,500 men stationed there. So really, that's almost kind of a small town in its own right. Yeah. The airfield stayed open actually until 1993 and servicemen continued to be, to be stationed there for many years after the war. So they... They actually provided quite a decent boost to the local economy. I looked at one estimate someone had put together, looking at 1957 alone, just one year, when you look at expenditure on local businesses and wages paid to local workers, it was in excess of £200 million at today's value. So really quite a colossal contribution to the local economy. The airfield itself is no more, and it's been partially taken over by the Gulliver's World theme park, which which sits on the outskirts of Warrington. But that does still contain the the RAF Burtonwood Heritage Centre within its grounds. So there's some commemoration there. And there's um there's a bit more infrastructure from from the Second World War. I know there's a there was a very large ordnance factory which is which is no longer there, but it was a huge site, and it's now formed part of the the new new town. As well as that. There was a nearby prisoner of war camp that has uh, a famous local tale associated with it. Yes, indeed. Um, there were a prisoner of war camps positioned near Warrington in the Second World War. That, that's not particularly unusual. We saw in our Swindon episode two how there was a prisoner of war camp nearby, which had some kind of impact on the character of the town at the time. But there is, as you say, quite an interesting story attached to the one near Warrington. It's happened... One Christmas Eve, when many German and Italian prisoners were marched into St Mary's Catholic Church just before midnight, the priest announced there could be no music during the service as the organist had been taken ill, rather unfortunately. But one of the German prisoners was an accomplished organist and volunteered to his guard to play for the service. And he played so beautifully and movingly, the story goes, that the entire congregation started weeping. The entire congregation? The entire congregation. Now, I have to admit, it's a lovely story. And the local history society in Warrington absolutely insists, swears that it's true on its website. But, you know, it is a little bit too perfect. You know, it's on Christmas Eve, the unanimous weeping. 
and there's no contemporary evidence offered for it. So I'm a little bit sceptical, but it's it's a nice local tale, so we'll include it here. I suppose it is. The church is still there, and it's it's a nice it's a nice tale. Um, also within Warrington, we weren't able to go inside, but there is a, um, a museum of policing. Yeah, the uh, the police station there. It's been home to the Museum of Policing in Cheshire since two thousand and four. I think it moved moved from Crewe. Uh, you can see original Victorian cells in there, but it is, it is quite difficult to visit. You have to arrange in advance or be part of an organised group. So it's not particularly not particularly noteworthy for a casual visitor. But if you're if you want to make the effort and book yourself in there, it's perfectly possible. Yeah, there, there's a bit on the website that that you could look at some of the some of the artifacts. But really, that's probably it for yeah. politics and war. I think it is. Yeah, um, honestly, there hasn't been an awful lot to talk about here. And there were some civil war battles, but even even those weren't all that significant. Though it is nice that you can see some of the tangible remnants today. You can see the churches that were involved, or even the battlefields themselves. If you look up some online battlefield guides, they'll help you find them and help you find your way around them. But there's not really much more in the way of national significance or even commemoration of important military events, with, of course, the exception of the RAF Burtonwood Heritage Centre. And we've had really nothing to say on politics. So it's unfortunately a fairly low score for me. It's going to be a two. Your description of those three phases of the Civil War and the importance of Warrington was interesting, um, but there's not really much to show for it. There is a one of the four statues of um, Oliver Cromwell, uh, in in the town, and we do have the Burtonwood Heritage Centre, but there's just, there's there's not much tangible left. Um, so for me, it's going to be a two. Okay, two out of ten from each of us. So that's four out of twenty overall. So our second category is arts and culture, and I think if you asked most people who's the most famous um who's the most famous writer that we can associate with warrington they would say lewis carroll yep absolutely warrington does make a claim as the home of lewis carroll the famous novelist and probably most famous for writing alice's adventures in wonderland amongst other many other works and carroll was born with the name charles dodgson he was also quite an accomplished mathematician and he this surprised me. He invented the word ladder. I mean, it, it surprised me because it seems yes, such a simple concept that I can't imagine anyone actually needing to invent it. And um, this is the, if, if you're not familiar with it, it's the game where you start with one word to have to get to another word by changing one letter at a time and forming brand new words in the middle. So if you wanted to get from word to land, then the second clue might be someone who sits in a parliamentary house and then you change word, the W to an L, it would be Lord, which is getting you one step to land. Um, but yeah, apparently he did invent it. Um, I'm not actually going to go into too much detail on Lewis Carroll here because he was actually from Daresbury, which is not really all that close to Warrington as as we know it. It's actually closer to, to the town of Runcorn. So it's a little bit difficult to give Warrington too much credit for him. But he is nonetheless commemorated in Warrington. There's a statue of the Mad Hatter's Tea Party in the town's old Market Square. There are a couple of pubs with Lewis Carroll themed Lewis Carroll themed names. So he at least gets a mention in this category. That's right. And I think if you were visiting the area, there is a heritage centre in Daresbury. And there are, and th- th- no one knows for certain, but it is claimed that the Cheshire cat, the grinning cat character, uh, is inspired by um, a carving at St. Wilfred's Church in Grappen Hall, which is a village which is kind of subsumed into Warrington. But I've heard alternative origin stories. The All Saints Church in that village, by the way, has a more modern stained glass window 
memorialising some of the characters as well. So there, there is a bit of celebration of Lewis Carroll um, in in the area. Talking who other famous uh, residents of um, of Warrington or, or the area. Um, our next famous resident is actually not a human, but rather a horse. Yeah, uh, old Billy, but n- not just any horse. The oldest horse recorded in history, and was How old born. Was he? Uh, he lived till he was sixty-two. He's not alive anymore. Oh. He was born in seventeen sixty, so he's been dead for a while now. Oh, but, um, oh, right. He was born in Woolston, on the outskirts of Warrington. Uh, 62, is yeah, it's a very, very good uh, life for a horse. It's over double the average life expectancy of a horse. Um, and he spent his whole life towing barges up the River Mersey. Now, we've put him in the... I, cul- I wonder if it's... Sorry, I was just wondering, it's double the average age. So that's the equivalent of a human living until 150. So at the time, you can imagine this, yes, this horse would have been, would have been very famous. And what did the horse do for a living? He spent his life towing barges up the River Mersey. So once again, the river was crucial. And we, we put him in the culture section because he did become a cultural icon in his own lifetime. There's, there's a portrait of him in Warrington Museum. Um, his, his head has been preserved, but split up and sent elsewhere. His skull's in Manchester Museum and his stuffed head's in Bedford Museum. So unfortunately, you'll have to go to those places if you want to see those artefacts. But no, he um, was born in, in Warrington. So there's a painting in Warrington. Yeah. The painting in Warrington Museum. Exactly. Uh, so there's a little bit of uh, little bit of retention of um, old Billy in the town. And do we have any other famous artists from Warrington? Uh, we, we can return to uh, a literary figure here, uh, Anna Letitia Barbode, or, or Barbo, possibly. No one's quite sure how she pronounced it herself. Uh, she was a romantic poet, writer, and essayist who was born in 1743, who spent probably her formative years between the ages of 15 and 30 living in Warrington. Her father taught at Warrington Academy, which is an institution we'll be talking a lot about in the science and industry section. Uh, But the important point here is that she found encouragement there to to pursue poetry and literature as her life's work. Uh, She went on to enjoy a career lasting over 50 years, um, really across a kind of a profoundly changing cultural backdrop from the 18th to 19th centuries, which is reflected in her work, in which she published poetry, novels, hymns and writings for children. She she did fall from fashion a little bit when she published a poem in 1812, which presented a a critical satire of Britain's role in the Napoleonic Wars at the time. But she's certainly started to be appreciated more in recent times, so definitely warrants a a mention in this category. It feels like there's not a huge amount in in the cultural category, and that might reflect the fact that Warrington's size today is much down, its population size is much down to it being an expanded town. So it would have been a smaller town historically, um, nearby large cities. So so not not a huge amount in this category. Although I feel when visiting Warrington, there is an effort to, to build a, build a cultural uh, life. There's a cultural quarter, as it's branded, uh, which contains, for example, the Warrington Par Hall, which is um, a grade two listed hall built in 1895. And it's on uh, Palmyra Square, which we'll, we'll come back to. The hall itself contains a famous organ in the world of pipe organs um, built by uh, Aristide Cavaille-Cole. Apparently it's um, a virtually untouched organ, so in the world of organs, quite significant. Around the Par Hall, it's a a sort of an area that's been branded as the cultural quarter, so you'll also find the the museum there and and the pyramid. So whilst I think Warrington's doing what it can to to build a cultural 
community. There isn't much in the history, so my score is going to be relatively low. It's going to be a two. I think it's not Warrington's strongest category. The Lewis Carroll link is celebrated, but it's, to put it politely, a tad tenuous. Old Billy is mildly interesting, but hardly world changing cultural heritage. Uh, there are there are plenty of famous modern cultural figures with with minor connections to Warrington, um, Pete Postlethwaite, uh, Chris Evans, Bert Kwok. Um, so yeah, there are, if it's the correct term, alumni from Warrington that, that can be mentioned. But it's, Gary Katona. Well, another one, yes, of course. How could I forget? But it's, it's perhaps unfortunate for Warrington that it sits midway between Liverpool and Manchester. So there maybe hasn't been that opportunity certainly in, in, in modern post-industrial times, for it, it to grow a major cultural scene in its, own, in its own right. So I think it's going to be a low score for me. It's going to be a, a one. A one. So that's... A one of, for Billy Billy the horse. That's it, yes. Well, half of him, half a Anna Letitia Barbode. Very good. And look, these are low scores, but Warrington is about to fight back because our next category is science and industry, where... <laughs> Our next category is science and industry, and Warrington is a town associated with many industries. Let's start, though, once again, with the significance of the River Mersey. Absolutely. Warrington's industry has, like many of its other historical events, always been heavily bound up with its water connections. This this started properly when the River Mersey was made navigable up to Bankey and Warrington in 1690 by a local businessman, Thomas Patton, whose family also built the town hall, which is something we'll come back to later. This then continued when the navigation along the Mersey was extended to Manchester in 1720. There's an important first related to this as well. In, in the Sankey Brook, also known as the St Helens Canal, which was built to run through Warrington and has been described as the first modern commercial canal in Britain and England's first canal of the Industrial Revolution. And um, though there is an argument that Newry Canal in Northern Ireland could have a claim to being the UK's first canal of the modern era. But the specific claim that relates to the St Helens Canal it relates to the fact that it was, wasn't just making an existing waterway navigable, but it incorporated a completely new artificial waterway along the Sankey Brook Valley. So there is a bit of a, a uniqueness to its claim. It was built in 1757, just two years after the Parliamentary Act, which authorised its construction, was passed. It, it fell into disuse in the first half of the 20th century, but there's been some modern restoration, which does has left most of the remaining canal in, within Warrington filled with water. But unfortunately, so many bridges have been built since that you can't just travel through the town by this canal anymore. So the impact is really just aesthetic, but no, that's, that's still important. Still, that's a really yep. big potential first for, for Warrington and um, I'll give you another first similar location the Great Sankey Railway Viaduct which actually goes over the canal this is sort of in the northwest of the town t- today within the expanded area um, arguably the first major railway viaduct built as part of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway in 1833 which as you know was the first intercity passenger railway and it was designed by Robert Stevenson and his Chief draftsman Thomas Longridge Gooch, another Gooch on the brother railways. of <laughs> brother of friend of the podcast Daniel Gooch. It's that Venn diagram again, isn't it? <laughs> Believe it or not, so we can't get away from Daniel Gooch. But this was his brother. Um, so the Gooch family 
big on railways. Yeah, very much so. Back in the day. Absolutely. Must have been um must have been fun Christmases they had. Well, talking talking about uh, trains, so- getting their model railways out. <laughs> Do you think they gave each other model trains for Christmas? They probably did. Train tea sets, that sort of thing. <laughs> so there's a couple of like that's a couple of firsts yeah. um in, in the history of transport uh, in, in Warrington. But let's go on to some of the, the industries. Big big industries coming from uh, Warrington. Where do you want to start? I think I'd like to start with a bit, a bit of an interesting one. This the, the shipbuilding industry that um used to exist in Warrington, including the uh, the famous ship RMS Taylor, which was constructed there. The, the, the shipbuilding industry was short-lived lived but it was quite significant it was on bank key and it grew up in the mid 19th century and it has a connection with the rms taylor which which sank in one of the largest shipping disasters in british history it predated the more famous titanic by several decades warrington is a bit of a strange place for one of the largest passenger ships of its day to have been built considering it's 20 miles away from any deep water and there was certainly a history of small sailing barges traveling in warrington since the mersey had been made navigable um, earlier on. But this had dropped off by the 1850s due to the deteriorating condition of the river. But nonetheless, the the Taylor, which was a a vast iron clipper that could carry 650 people, was built there in the 1850s at the uh, Charles Taylor foundry. Uh, This foundry had already been established for making other iron goods like naval cannon, and it won a lot of prestige by gaining an, an award for its exhibit at the Great Exhibition and producing... Uh, great bridges and locomotives for countries all around the British Empire. So there's a definite thread there from uh, existing industries in Warrington into this uh, significant shipbuilding industry that, that it had in the 1850s. And the, the firm itself expanded into shipbuilding, built at least 15 iron ships from 1846 to 1857. And there seems to have been quite a lot of local pride in the works being done here. Lo- lots of locals turned up to watch the Taylor being launched on the River Mersey. Um, I do wonder whether they were maybe just in disbelief as to whether it could be launched at all, but um, it, it was indeed. And the ship was chartered by White Star to carry passengers and trade to Australia. But like the Titanic, which was also operated by a company called White Star, um, it sank on its maiden voyage, which was launched from Liverpool, which is just up the Mersey from Warrington, of course, in 1854, killing 370 of the 650 passengers on board. It sank partly due to deficiencies with its equipment. Um, Compass failure was one of them. And it ran aground uh, at an island just off the coast of, of Ireland. Unsurprisingly, given the connections with White Star and the great loss of life, the disaster has been described as the first Titanic, though it's, it's probably fair to point out that White Star, the two White Star companies were separate corporate entities just with the, sharing the same name. And after the sinking, there was this local pride that had been in Warrington and the ship's construction there seemed to turn into kind of a sense of shock and disbelief. The local newspaper in a, a contemporary contemporary report openly admitted in an editorial that the news wasn't believed in the town at first, and they'd sent a reporter up to Liverpool specifically to to check its veracity. The newspaper even expressed a bit of pretty misplaced optimism that the ship might be raised and used again for a few days after it sank, but um, it, it wasn't raised. And shipbuilding in Warrington ended within just a couple of years of the, of the sinking simply because ships were becoming just too large for launching into the Mersey at this point. The foundry itself is closed and there's there's no trace that remains on Bank Key, but the Taylor sinking is still remembered in a display at the Warrington Museum. So there is a bit of a, a local memorial to it there. So I read that the compass didn't work because of interference from the 
the amount of iron in the ship. That's exactly it. Yes. Oversight to me. Exactly it. Yeah, <laughs> it's remarkable. So, there was a period of shipbuilding that's that's unexpected, but um, that that's great great to learn about. I suppose it's quite far inland. Um, although later, of course, the Manchester Ship Canal was built, so we ended up having ships as far far east as Manchester. But that's that's a separate mm. episode. Um, other industries, shipbuilding, very interesting. What else? Yeah, shipbuilding, interesting but short-lived. But Warrington does have a much lengthy history in other industries. Some of the early modern industries, ancient, kind of the ancient trades in the area, included cockles and salmon from the River Mersey, gooseberry growing. There was notable activity in the early modern period in brewing, printing, tanning and sawmills. But the one industry that Warrington is most known for is wire production. It's still seen today in the nickname of the War- of Warrington's rugby club, The Wire, and the local radio station, Wire FM. And the industry grew, again, from an existing uh, trade that was carried on there, um, pin making, because pins are essentially just, think about them, pieces of sharpened wire with a flat bit on the end. This, in turn, grew from Warrington's existing copper industry. So, you know, as with many of these things, you can trace a lineage through Warrington's industrial past up to its its major uh, trade to the modern era. The wire production process itself is, is, is quite fascinating. It worked by producing large rods of metal in local foundries, heating them and cooling them to soften them, and then pulling them through a kind of a template hole in a plate, which gave the, the thickness and the shape, whether it was be, say, round or hexagonal for the wire. It, it, it sounds to me a bit like very hot and very, very dangerous Play-Doh if you want to visualise it, <laughs> with someone pulling it through at the end. Yeah. And the wire had to be pulled usually several times. You couldn't normally just go straight from the big thick rod to the little thin wire. And it was performed with special pliers until the 1920s when automation kicked in, as it tended to do with these things. But wire drawers themselves, the people who actually did the wire pulling, were, were quite respected workers in the town, actually. They, they earned very well. They had rooms in pubs set aside just for them. They were called guinea rooms, as you had to pay a guinea to enter, which only the wire drawers could afford. And while the industry's now, now gone, Warrington Museum does own a fascinating remnant, actually. It, it's a bird's nest obtained from one of the old wire factories made of old pieces of wire, which the birds had just picked up and formed into a their nest rather than twigs. They actually have a short blog on this in their website, the, the Warranty Museum website, where you can see the photo if you're interested in having a look at it. That's absolutely incredible. I, I do love that wireman snobbery. Yeah. yeah. You have to be a wireman to get in the lounge. Very good. Uh, other big industries included soap. One of the first things you see when you arrive into Warrington Bank Key Station, which is the main station on the, the West Coast Main Line, is the enormous Unilever, Unilever factory right next to it. There's no big high wall between it. There's just a fence, I think. So it's it's right in your view. You, you absolutely can't miss it. And this factory produced surf and personal washing powder, the latter since 1909. It's a very old brand, but actually closed very recently, the factory in, in 2020. It's a, it's a bit of a local landmark and it's it's a direct remnant really of Warrington's long history in soap production. This history dates back to the 1750s when soap was produced by the Mersey um, and then the factory itself was established in 1815 for soap production by a young man called Joseph Crossfield, but then taken over later by Unilever in 1964. One one intriguing remnant of the factory's past is there's still the old Joseph Crossfield and Son entrance, which remains at the Unilever building. So it's it's, it's nice to see this has survived for, I suppose, over half a century of, of Unilever ownership. Sort of recognise your, your feelings on the 
the scale of the factory. It's very in your face, isn't it? You get off mm. the, the West Coast Mainline Station of Bank Key and it says, basically says, welcome to Warrington industry. Mm. Absolutely. Which um, I, I certainly find exciting. And that I think that brings us nicely on to a really quite an iconic in, industrial history. The, the factory's probably other most famous landmark is the Transporter Bridge, which spans the, the River Mersey. There were originally two Transporter Bridges in Warrington, but only this one remained. It was built in 1915 and used until 1964 to connect railway at first and then later road vehicles between the two sections of the Crossfield Soapworks factory, either side of the river. Uh, the bridge was grade two star listed in 1975. It has a span of 61 metres with a total length of 103. And the span is held 23 metres high up in the air because to explain how a transporter bridge works, it works by carrying vehicles across the river not on the span itself, as you would normally get with a bridge, but in a special container, which is suspended below the span of the bridge, 23 metres up in the air. This meant that the, the span could be built high up, transport things over when needed, but there would be nothing permanently blocking traffic along the river. There are only a few transporter bridges left in the world. There are about 8 to 13. It really depends on your precise definition, but that's still only a handful and only three or four in Britain, again, depending how you define them, because the one at um, Royal Victoria Dock in London has so far only only been used as a footbridge. Uh, the transporter bridge in Warrington doesn't work anymore, fortunately. It is possible to get up to it and have a look at it. It's not particularly simple, though. So if, if you do want to go to it, I wouldn't just be relying on Google Maps or Apple Maps for that. I'd look up some fully guided directions online for how to get there, or if you can, go as part of an organised group. I think that's right. And there is quite a good website organised by the Friends of the Transporter Bridge, which has got some more detailed um, description on how, how to get there. So I think that's that's the way to go about it. But I, I think the reason these transporter bridges are, are so po- they're sort of popular is because they've got that vast scale because by necessity they have to be high but they've also got that victorian industrial appearance because of the trust structure so if you if you think of the three towns in britain that have got transporter bridges middlesbrough newport warrington in in all of those towns it's quite they're they're appreciated local structures evocative to other past industrial era i think there's also something quite intriguing about them when you first see them as a as a child or an adult or whatever and you think well how did that work especially one that isn't working anymore you think did they did cars just get transported up in a big lift or something and then you absolutely you find out no they were just carried across in a gondola because i think the other two middlesbrough and newport are, i think at the moment they're not working but they're both being refurbished so we we will still have two working uh transporter bridges mm. um for those that want to try one i must admit i'd quite like to i'd, I'd have a go certainly so we touched on it earlier the we touched on it earlier the warrington academy yeah, but we should get more into details here because this Warrington Academy was a, a, a pretty important 18th century <clears throat> dissenting educational establishment. Uh, it was founded in 1757 and dissenting in the sense that it provided education for people who, for those who dissented from Church of England teaching and doctrine, people who at that point were barred from entering any university in the country. It was very important in the development of Unitarianism in Britain, which is a branch of Christian belief that holds that Jesus was inspired by God, but not himself divine. And its famous scientific and social scientific alumni that were numerous, but the f- most famous ones include Joseph Priestley, who famously discovered oxygen and invented carbonated water. So you can thank him for, for Coke and Sprite and, uh, and beer, I suppose, to some extent. And Thomas Malthus, 
who was the great demographer and a name that's hung very heavy over some of my work in the past, my, some of my de- demographic history studies. But there was, there was lots of other output from the Academy and from its alumni and the development of scientific ideas particularly. Uh, this includes an important early work on medical ethics, one of the first ones from top Thomas Percival and early writings on p- public health in general. As for the question of why why so much you know, quality important and important thinking has stemmed from one one institution, people have theorised that it wasn't necessarily the quality of teaching at the academy, but more the uh, the underlying religious unrest which helped ferment these ideas and this kind of coming together of minds. The, the academy building itself is is no more, unfortunately. It stood on Bridge Street, was, was picked up and moved about 20 metres up the street in the early 80s, but no longer exists. Uh, so unfortunately, the only remnants are the intangible ones in the output of the academy's teachers and pupils. But these are probably more important than any one building, so definitely worth commemorating as much as we can. There's some some really famous um, Joseph Priestley and Thomas Malthus, really famous um, outputs from there. But the, the, there's been a lot there. Do you, do you want to go on to your scoring? Yeah, certainly. I, I agree. We've we've said a lot. I think industry and trade are clearly crucial, not just to the town's economy, but to its development and its identity. We have, we have a couple of important firsts. Um, in the St. Helens Canal and the Viaduct, and a unique local industry and wire drawing, which still has resonance today in the town's identity, as we saw in the, in the name of the rugby club and local radio station. It, it's not going to be a top score here, partly because the commemoration is perhaps a tad less tangible than, than some might like, but it's still going to be pretty decent. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. What tempers the score for me is there's not big hitting um, museums about some of the history of these industries. And I, I was reading online that there was a, a study done that perhaps that showed that perhaps some of the industrial history wasn't well known or well engaged with. And, and there was a project coming out of that called the Warrington Wireworks, which has which has created a load of projects to to try and celebrate that that industrial heritage. Um, but personally, I'm a bit of an industry nerd, and I enjoyed things like the transporter bridge, the the, the canal, and the railway. There's a few firsts there, so for me, it's a seven point five. Oh, that's pretty good then. So overall, fourteen and a half out of twenty for Warrington. That's it. Well, our fourth category is urban landscape. I think it's fair to say Warrington has developed in phases. So let's start with an overview of that element of its history. Yeah, let's talk, talk about the town layout. Because kind of as an overview, Warrington's urban development, as it, as it influences the layout of the town today, can really be split into, I think, two, two main eras. First, you have what I will call the Old Town area, which was originally centred around St Elphin's Church. So if we talk about something that happened before the 20th century in the town of Warrington, not specific, and we don't specifically mention a suburb or a village around it where it occurred, that area around St Elphin's Church is most likely where it would have taken place. For instance, that's the area where the occupying army stayed during the Civil War. And there is a plaque specifically commemorating this on the side of of a pub there. But Warrington was also transformed later by the, the new town development from the 1960s. Um, so often in the Oldie Guide, we see location and transport links as the reason for a town's ancient foundation. But in, in this case, they're actually also a key reason for its being picked as a new town in 1968 because of its proximity to Liverpool and Manchester and its location on uh, key transport links. Technically, Warrington was a, a partnership new town, which differed from plain new towns because the developments 
connected to already existing towns rather than being built from scratch to kind of connect with a nearby large city as as with say Milton Keynes and London so essentially the, the new town development grafted a brand new town and suburbs onto the old historical market and industrial center the, the new town development has been explored in academic projects recently particularly there's one um, known as days of the new town which you can find mentioned details of it on the internet it, it's it's recently had an exhibition in the town and i think it's currently conducting an oral history project on people's experience of the early days of the new town development so there are steps definitely being undertaken to commemorate the modern history of the town's development as well as the old so on this new town subject i I don't feel, from from my experience of Warrington, which actually for the new town, the expanded town elements is quite limited. I, I don't feel it's got quite as much interesting new town design as, say, nearby Runcorn. You know, nearby Runcorn's got a co- concrete guided busway and a city centre mm. shopping mall, more in, more in keeping with the the new towns like Milton Keynes. So the Warrington's not really got that. So I think there's less to say. Um, on this one, I think at some point we'll do an episode on a full-blown new town. Um, but nevertheless, it's transformed the scale of the town, and it's you know it's doubled its population. Let's go into the the old town, though, as it were, um, and start and, and explore some of the some of the more significant buildings in in the town. Uh, Warrington Town Hall um, is is definitely a highlight. It, it, it's a pretty grand Palladian building. It, it's definitely more ornate than a lot of the similar Palladian public buildings we've mentioned before, like custom houses in Lancaster and Ipswich. Um, it, it was built in 1750 for, as we mentioned earlier, Thomas Patton, who made the Mersey navigable to Warrington and brought, in, in that sense, so much industrial prosperity to, to the town. And you can still see his family's coat of arms on the, the town hall's pediment. The hall had originally stood in open fields away from Warrington Centre, but the town gradually moved and kind of enveloped the hall as as the town grew, and this led to the construction of a perimeter wall around the town hall. Now, the south side is more ornate and definitely the best side to view it from, not least because of probably its most famous feature, the, the magnificent golden gates that stand in front of it on that south side. Mm-hmm. Those gates were originally made from the 1862 International Exhibition and supposedly were first presented to Queen Victoria for installation at Sandringham, which is her official residence in Norfolk. But the Queen didn't like them, so they were sold to a Warrington Town Councillor for installation in front of the Town Hall. And when you see them, they, they really do look like they should be standing in front of a royal palace. They they don't look like the kind of gates you'll see in front of many many town halls. Well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're very impressive. I don't know what Queen Victoria was on about. I think they're they're beautiful. Well, maybe maybe <laughs> she maybe she had enough already. I can't imagine she was short. She probably did. To be fair, I mean, they they are very impressive, and they terminate Win Marley Street, which is in the cultural quarter. So you you walk up this street and up the hill, and you've got these massive gates. And I I think the only thing is they they look a little bit incongruous, partly because the rest of the park. So the park is called Bank Park. It's a really nice park, but there's no railings around the parks. The railings were removed. So I, I wonder if historically it, it fitted in a bit better. The railings were removed for the war effort, as as often happened. It's a very um, common I wonder that, actually. Yeah, you go to lots of, mm. lots of towns, you see parks, and you'll see the kind of the concrete footings with holes in them for the old railings that used to be there. Um, near here, Slough, there's a major park in Slough, which is, is like that. Should we, go, should we go into the town a bit? And I... I think we should mention the the covered market, which um, I really enjoyed. 
Yeah, I enjoyed it too. It's um, the original Victorian Market Hall was was first built in 1856. Originally, it was made of just brick and stone, but um, iron and glass roofed extensions were added later on. A new Market Hall was built as part of the new town redevelopment of the town in the 1970s. But this new market building was demolished in 2015 when the the Times Square Shopping Centre was built, which is where the market eventually moved to permanently in 2020. So obviously there's not much history to the current market building if it's only a couple of years old, but it, it does follow an interesting story of kind of movement about the town in, in tandem with with development of the town itself. And it, it's also a pretty nice spot to eat or drink in. It, it recently won a national award for the best covered market. And this has actually left the original Victorian market hall area free for redevelopment as a, as a festival and entertainment area. And I think it really does provide a nice central focal point for the town. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I loved the market. I thought it was a great covered market. The, the new and the old blending together, both in terms of the building and also what was within the market. Because you, I think it's got about 50 traders and it's got um, all your traditional market traders you'd expect in a covered market, but also some, some great modern dining options as well. So really delicious food in there. But also I think the broader development, Times Square that you've mentioned, and that was completed 2020, extension of the town centre. And, and often I find these kind of modern town centre extensions can be a bit bland. A lot of what's in it, it's got a multiplex cinema, car park, offices, retail. So often that's bland, but I think this is a really good development. Uh, I think it's I agree. got a couple of... Well, I'll t- tell you why. There's just s- some efforts gone into the architecture to, to celebrate some of the industrial history of Warrington. I sort of mentioned in the last category that I didn't think... I thought more could be celebrated. You've got the car park, which is covered in 1700 aluminium panels. The panels have got hexagonal openings, which are supp- supposedly inspired by the town hall gates and the history of wire you mentioned, mm. hexagonal hexagonal wire so that that's that's turned a car park into a bit of a landmark and adjacent to that the the cinema has got a strip of 3d pyramids made from aluminium that that look a different color from different angles so it just gives it a bit of bit of character and the square itself as you say is a good good centerpiece for the town i want to say a bit more about some of the elements of the town that surprised me actually because i I, I didn't know Warrington particularly well at all, and I thought there were some areas of, of really quite pleasant and well-preserved Victorian conservation. So there's an area around Palmyra Square, which which is where the Par Hall is, um, and it's got some it's got some quite um, impressive red brick and sandstone buildings, such as the Technical School, uh, the Gymnasium, the law, the former courts, uh, the museum is nearby. Um, and I and I bring this up because. I sort of went into the Warrington thinking very much about the industrial characterization of the town. And and we've seen that that's very much the case. But a legacy of that it was that it brought some wealth, which has enabled these well-planned areas of Victorian townhousing to, to be set out. And I think Warrington's done quite a good job of um, of conserving that. Not always. There's some elements that are um, a bit disappointing. I think you'll, you'll probably mention the waterfront. Um, when you're yeah. when you're evaluating yeah. um so I'll, I'll let you discuss that but i i thought that, that the area around um palmyra square or palmyra square was um was was good and within that area you've also got the museum and art gallery which the museum itself gives a good overall description of the history of, of warrington but really as a museum i think it's it's one of those museums it's quite successful as a, a museum of a museum it reminds me of uh, the old ipswich museum which i i know you'd have been too many times where mm. you've got that that victorian classic victorian layout of a 
Natural History Museum. It was built in 1848. And now it's a, a general museum, so it covers yeah. natural history, but also the, the history of the town. Um, and it's a good little museum. I think it's worth a visit. And it's got an adjoining, an adjoining art gallery, which when I went had a feature called Cloud Factory, which was... And this was when I, when I went in September 2022. This was Cloud Factory, and it was about one of those massive coal-fired power stations. This one's called Fiddler's Ferry. It's on the edge of Warrington. And it's one of those power stations that has those massive cooling towers. I think they're 114 metres high, eight cooling towers. There's a lot of local sentimentality about them. So this gallery was just all these beautiful pictures and perspectives of and paintings of these these cooling towers. There's clearly local attachments and you know we spoke about the, the the chemicals factory we spoke about the industrial buildings that you see at bank key clearly you you can get attachment to these massive industrial buildings there's a certain awesomeness about them in the scale and i think there was an attempt to list this uh, power station but it's not been not been successful that sort of brings me on to my my score really it's a bit better than i expected because i thought the central layout of the town was um, was quite attractive and it was quite bustling when I was there and there's also some green space and a ring around the town Times Square is one of my favourite town centre developments that I've seen that said the good areas of Warrington aren't very extensive for me it's going to be a four yeah coming back to a point you made around waterways yeah I, one thing that really struck me is when researching Warrington I was really expecting those waterways to be a really prominent feature of the town's aesthetic because as we keep talking about the town was founded as a ford across the river it sits on the border between two historic counties it was the location of the first modern canal of the industrialized world and it, it, it really owes its modern economic growth to all that but considering how important the river and canal have been to warrington's history it, it's surprising how limited a feature they are of the town today actually you, you can't really see them very easily unless you're looking for them and it's actually even quite difficult to get to them if you don't know where you're going if you're not seeking it out you certainly aren't going to stumble across them but it, it, it's probably fair to say that you know while there is maybe not very much of ancient historical interest in the town itself Warrington is a much more bustling place than I'd imagined which I think is kind of your point that you made it, 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 it's its townscape reflects a lot of well, immense recent change, which reflects its kind of economic development and a move in employment, you know, from, from close-centred industry around the town centre with the population all clustered there to retail and development and more suburban living. So, you know, it's, it's not going to be first on the tourist trail for ancient buildings, but there is there's still, if you're looking for it, a lot you can experience in Warrington reflecting recent changes in British townscapes. So, my score is a not too terrible four, the same as yours. So that's eight out of 20 overall. So now we're on to our final category, which is the wild card. You never know what's going to happen in this category. This category is called reality versus expectations. Probably the most subjective category because this is where we give a score for how we how much we enjoyed the town, how much, how much interest we found, how much historical interest we found compared to our expectations. Warrington, it's not a well-known town. It's not a well-visited town. So expectations have to be fairly moderate, I think. I can't say I found all that much to confound those expectations. It's a former industrial new town sandwiched between two major cities, and it probably has struggled to leave much of a unique mark on the world. 
um, aside perhaps from the Warrington Academy. But, but it's definitely a place with, with energy and with life. And it can still tell you a story about a particular kind of modern urban development if you want it to. So on that basis, my score is going to be right down the middle, five. Okay. Well, this is the most subjective category. I'm I'm going to go a bit higher than you, actually. And, I, and I'll tell you why. My expectations were were really low. You know, it's like with anything you do, you be, do a bit of digging and you find stuff as you've, as you know, as we've set out over, over this episode. And I also managed to spend a whole day there and I hadn't booked anything like a, I hadn't booked an activity, you know, like going to Gulliver's Park or, or a rugby league game or, or a gig. I just found there was enough of a narrative about the town and I felt a, a good direction of travel. There was a bit more buzz than I expected. A busy town centre around the market gates, sounds boring but you know i thought there was a good range of shops um golden square Times square I, I i thought there was quite a bit there and then there's this history and um, this industrial history but but i think my gripe um i i share disappointment with the riverfront i know that there's a master plan to do more with the waterfront um but but i thought that was a pretty pretty poor area just dominated by traffic and there's a cenotaph there by the waterfront and the bridge and i thought that whole area was a bit bit miserable just overwhelmed with traffic i thought there were some areas in coming out of the town center that were nice um i had a walk up to uh, saint elphin's church for example which itself was lovely the immediate surroundings of the church were lovely it's got an 18th century gateway a couple of pubs nearby and on the way a smattering of historic buildings but the areas that where more effort had been made to conserve I, I felt i felt it was rather pleasant so i'm gonna go a seven okay bit of a difference there which is good so 12 out of 20 overall do you think my expectations are just getting uh, too high do you think the yoldy guide is spoiling me <laughs> oh, look i these scores are controversial whatever happens because you go we went to bath which is mm. one of the most famous an attractive towns in the country and we gave it good scores yeah we did urban layout i think we gave i think we both gave bath a nine but bath in the oldie guides league table doesn't do very well because there wasn't enough in the um in the other categories so it's it's the balance of categories and mm. yeah if you're not interested in industrial history there's there's probably there's probably less to see in warrington yeah yeah that's fair okay so that's overall uh politics and war Four out of 20. Science and industry, the big one, 14 and a half out of 20. Art and culture, three out of 20. Urban landscape, eight out of 20. And reality versus expectations, 12 out of 20. So for Warrington, the total is 41 and a half out of 100. Well, that's all we have time for in Warrington. Please do get in touch with your thoughts on the podcast. We'd love to hear, especially if we've missed something about Warrington. I know I said I didn't find the, the urban extension as exciting as other new towns. I'd love to be proven wrong if there's some fascinating 20th century design that I've missed. And please do get in touch. Visit the website, yoldyguide.com. We're going to post some pictures on there. And there's more details about the podcast there, including other episodes. Please give us a rating or review or even a subscription on your podcast provider. Um, Daniel, have you got plans to go back to Warrington for any rugby league? Uh, not immediately. My my travelling to the to the north days are more limited these days. I used to pass oh, through all cool. the way to Ipswich games. 
think the last time I was on my way to Fleetwood. Yep, certainly if the opportunity comes up, I'll be there. In our next episode, we're going to a very famous city in the history of academia and general genius. We're going to Cambridge. We're back on the tourist trail. High expectations for that one. <laughs> we hope you can join us in Cambridge. Um, bye for now. Yep, bye from me.